So let's take a moment and think back. And for some of us, that might be further back than others. <laughs> I'm trying not to look at you too. Nice. <laughs> Age <Hard>. jokes. <laughs> All right. But in your elementary, middle, and high school years, what did you learn about Asian American history? Can you name, let's say, five specific things that you learned about the role of Asians in American history? How about three? How about one? We're willing to bet that a lot of you out there can't even name just one. Well, and honestly, it's interesting you say that because I remember looking at my mom's attic and finding my high school notes and realizing that I had actually learned about Confucius back then, which I could barely remember learning with any significance about. But I realize that when you talk about Asian American history right now, it's exactly that Asian American history. We're not talking about learning about what's happened in Japan or China or Korea or Indonesia or any of the other Asian countries. It's what has happened with Asians in America. And I cannot remember being taught anything. Right. And given how things are slow to change, there's a high chance if you've got kids, your kids aren't learning about that in school now either. The importance of representation in curriculum is a favorite topic of ours, and today we're turning this focus on the history of Asian Americans in the United States. Because if you know the history, you'll know that anti-Asian racism ain't new, people. In fact, it's basically been built into American society for as long as Asians have been in this country. So get ready, because today we're going to anti-racism school. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to dismantle and uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial half Japanese hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And so here we are, almost two months after six Asian women were killed in a mass shooting in Atlanta. We're over a year from when Trump started using the moniker China virus, heavy air quotes, to describe COVID-19. And Unfortunately, we're thousands of anti-Asian hate incidences in, you know, that's brought discrimination against Asians to the awareness of more white Americans. But here's the problem. We're still seeing people describe these crimes and instances as one-off incidents. And to not link the hate that we're seeing now with this racism and discrimination that Asians have faced in this country since they became part of this country. And why might that be? Well, we have a theory. A lot of the framing of Asian American history centers around immigration, and that immigration framing is what is largely taught in schools. And the problem is immigration is not most of the story. It's just the beginning. So there's a professor of elementary and early childhood education at Georgia's Kennesaw State University who has researched how Asian American history is represented in state social studies standards nationwide. And she lives about 20 minutes away from the spas that were attacked in Atlanta. This professor, Soyun An, worries that if students only learn about the Asian American history as an immigration story, they may not realize how long the community has actually been here. And she says that ignorance can have serious consequences. As she told Time Magazine, which is where she came to our attention, Asians were part of the United States even well before many white European immigrants came through Ellis Island. Kids grow up in Georgia and think Asians are all foreigners. And then when they become the enemy to national crises like COVID-19, and then they become, say, the military enemy, an economic competitor like China or Japan, all of these are coming from a missed opportunity in school to teach that Asians are a real part of America. Curriculum is not a matter of academic debate. The danger is real. And if you're listening and you're thinking, okay, what's a specific example here then? So we've got some. 
For example, Georgia's state social studies standards for what fifth grade students are expected to know include Japanese aggression in Asia and the Pearl Harbor attacks, both tied to World War II and specifically Japan's actions in World War II, but not notably the incarceration of Japanese Americans in the United States, which was the US's actions in World War II. And as a side note, I remember being in college, talking to a friend from Georgia who had never heard and had not been told in history class about the Japanese American incarceration in the United States, which at what point like my mind like was fully blown because to me, this was such a key part of our country's history and our country's discrimination against Asians that I thought for sure everyone knew this, but that's not the case. No, maybe it's because you're half Japanese. Right. And that's why you were attuned to it, right? So if we don't have that personal connection and we're not learning it in school, where are people possibly learning this from? And so why has this been the case? Why are we being taught some things, but largely not Asian American history? And scholars agree that one of the reasons a full history of Asian Americans has not been incorporated into core U.S. history curricula in K-12 schools is because it doesn't portray America in a positive light. According to Jean Wu, who has taught Asian American studies for more than 50 years and is a senior lecturer emerita at Tufts, and this is also according to Time magazine, K-12 American history texts reinforce the narratives that Asian immigrants and refugees are fortunate to have been helped, in air quotes, and saved by the U.S. The story does not begin with U.S. imperialist wars that were waged to take Asian wealth and resources and the resulting violence, rupture, and displacement in relation to Asian lives. Few realize that there is an Asian diaspora here in the U.S. because the U.S. went to Asia first. And we'd just like to pause here and repeat. The U.S. went to Asia first. And unfortunately, while there were several major events that could have led to the teaching of more history and the realities of racially marginalized Asian groups in America, that hasn't been the case. Again, according to Wu, historic moments such as the murder of Vincent Chin, the Japanese-American redress movement, the destruction of Koreatown, 9-11 and the targeting of South Asian Americans, none of those did not engender interest in AAPI histories and curricular reevaluation in K-12. through and if you're scratching your head being like, I don't know about some of these, we'll get to them. But why can't we do better? Well, the answer is, and we've talked on the show about it before, sometimes this stuff really starts with a look inwards. Some of it is personal. And as stated by Noreen Nassim Rodriguez, who is an assistant professor of elementary social studies at Iowa State University, many of the teaching candidates she supervises have not had exposure to a wide range of historical perspectives and might hesitate when it comes to instructing them. In the 27-2018 school year, for example, about 80% of public school teachers were white compared to 2% who were Asian. Rodriguez said, I see this real terror that they're going to say or do something that will upset parents and end their careers. So they don't want to talk about race. They want books that have diverse characters, but they don't really want to talk about racial discrimination or stereotypes unless it's through a simplified context of bullying. So... When teachers are trying to emphasize notions of being nice or kind rather than being anti-racist or not being unjust, that's why we're not ready as a society or particularly as K-12 educators to deeply engage with these topics, perhaps because we ourselves haven't done that learning. As a side note, I should really take a photo of my kid wearing this, but my child has a shirt 
that says anti-racism is greater than kindness. That is what this is saying. Kindness to all is not the same as acknowledging the discrimination and harm that comes from racism and what we can do to address that directly and help offset it. But what I just said, it makes me feel like it's this circular trap of this lack of curriculum improvement, right? Teachers aren't ready to teach it because it wasn't in the curriculum as they were going through their own education and they haven't experienced that learning in real life. And now they can't teach it to the children here and now, especially because it continues to not be in the curriculum. We really have to decide that we want to break that cycle and push for change in our schools. And the problem with not engaging with these topics is that these are part of our nation's historical treatments of Asians. And as we said, and I I seriously, I'm going to keep saying it, though, I feel like a broken record, though. (laughs) Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. You know, I think we've seen more instances of that than we'd like to even admit in these past five years. So it's very important to note that these recent instances of anti-Asian hate are far from new developments. Asian Americans, a new docu-series that's coming to PBS on May 11th, cannot wait for this, by the way. I got to put that in my calendar. Yes. Traces this history all the way back to the 19th century when mobs committed mass murder on Chinese immigrants on the West Coast. Since then, Asian Americans, who have been commonly thought of as an upwardly mobile model minority, and if you're wondering about that, we've got an episode coming on that too, have often been violently scapegoated for larger societal issues with their attackers only vindicated or protected by institutional forces. Are you surprised to learn about historic violence against Asians? If you are, listen on. And even if you're not, because this is a good reminder. So this docuseries, Asian Americans, covers many aspects of history from college campus protests to the rise of cultural icons like Anna Mae Wong and Margaret Cho. But its segments about prejudice violence have particular resonance right now. The producer, Rene Tajima-Pena, as well as their whole staff that put this together, hope that the series will put the current attacks into perspective. As Tajima Pena told Time Magazine, you see these fault lines of racism and xenophobia in relation to immigrants that have always been there. In times of crisis, they erupt. They erupted during World War II. They erupted after 9-11. And they're erupting now. Now, you know we love history here on the podcast. So let's do a speed round of some of the key yet often overlooked incidents of racist attacks towards Asian Americans, starting with Yellow Peril. Yeah, get ready. So in the mid-1800s, tens of thousands of Chinese immigrants came to the U.S. seeking the gold mountain of California. But instead of finding riches, many of them became hard laborers on the Transcontinental Railroad, blasting through the Sierra Nevada under brutal working conditions. And as a side note, I remember learning about some of this in school, but what I'm going to talk about next, I do not remember learning about. When the railroad was finished in 1869, many workers settled in Chinatowns on the West Coast, becoming farmers, fishermen, launderers, or domestic servants. But while the immigrants might have been initially accepted as cheap laborers, they were abhorred as they formed their own communities, especially as a deep recession sunk in, beginning in 1873. And according to Tajima Pena, she notes, Asians were seen as bringing unfair labor competition, vice, and disease. Does some of this sound familiar? Yep. Racially charged language soon dominated tabloids, cartoons, town halls, and the speeches of politicians who used anti-Chinese rhetoric as an easy way to curry favor with voters. 
what's that I said about history repeating itself? I sound familiar again. Yeah. Horace Greeley, who was a prominent political figure and the founder of the New York Tribune, labeled Chinese Americans as, quote, uncivilized, unclean, and filthy beyond all conception without any of the higher domestic or social relations. Not shockingly, this type of language boiled over into deadly violence time and time again. In 1871, at least 17 Chinese immigrants were hanged in makeshift gallows by a large white mob in Chinatown in Los Angeles. In 1885, an armed mob forcibly drove a Chinese population out of its Tacoma, Washington homes, menacing its community with rifles, breaking into houses and smashing doors and windows. The same year, white workers in Wyoming massacred... 28 Chinese coal miners. So when you hear those, do you think that as a result of that violent mob attacks, there would be more protections afforded to Asians in America? If you thought that, you're wrong. In each instance, these vicious attacks did not result in increased protections for Asian Americans, but further, basically, institutional debasement. In Tacoma, the city, remember that Chinese population, mob, rifles, like pushed out of their houses, that city's mayor, Jacob Weisbach, participated himself in the mob. In Los Angeles, the manslaughter convictions of eight men were ultimately overturned on a legal technicality. In 1882, the widespread anti-Chinese sentiment was turned into law with the Chinese Exclusion Act, marking the first time the U.S. had ever barred a specific ethnic group from immigrating to this country. And there is a great New Yorker article out that details this whole Chinese Exclusion Act time period in painful but very important detail. Wow. Okay, so that's Yellow Peril. Next, hitting a little closer to home but digging back into history, carriers of disease. Has anyone experienced anything close to, say, a pandemic recently? Mm, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So let's go back because angry white attackers used plenty of excuses for their violence, including economic and sexual fears. But the most frequent type of rhetoric was perhaps medically based. Lee says it goes back to the notions of China being a place of billions of people living together with unsanitary health habits and strange eating customs that mark them as uncivilized in comparison to the West. Hmm. Oh, how people don't understand cultures and their foods. But when a smallpox outbreak hit San Francisco in 1875, the city's health officer blamed, quote, unscrupulous, lying and treacherous Chinamen who have disregarded our sanitary laws. Every house in Chinatown was forcibly fumigated, but the epidemic continued to spread. So then fast forward a little bit. In 1900, the bubonic plague broke out in Honolulu. And in response, the Board of Health set fire to 41 buildings in the city's Chinatown, forcing its residents into quarantine detention camps. In Santa Ana, California, six years later, the city's council, citing a man who allegedly contracted leprosy, decided to burn down its own Chinatown. A thousand local residents gathered nearby to watch this. But while the fire department sort of stood by in case the adjacent buildings needed protection. Mind blown. Seriously. Just picture this happening today, folks, right? Like imagine your house, your neighbor, your local Chinatown or your Japantown or whatever being under this sort of thing. More examples on Angel Island in San Francisco Bay, the main immigration checkpoint on the West Coast, prospective immigrants were subjected to humiliating and invasive medical examinations and held for weeks in its detention center before they were either allowed to enter the country or were deported. So existing racial ideas got medicalized and transferred into public health narratives and then policies. And this is again from Lee. 
So to be clear, if we're talking about immigrants bringing in disease because of the conditions of their travel to the shores, as opposed to something inherent in them, even remember the millions of white European immigrants who were also making their way in, bringing disease in. Why was this only in history typically directed towards Asians? Again, it's pretty hard to differentiate the looks of white European immigrants compared to Asian immigrants, isn't it? I don't know, just mull over how that might have played into the treatment of Asian immigrants in particular. Uh, and I keep thinking about sort of the romanticization of Ellis Island, you know, when you think about that story and that narrative of, you know, give us your tired, your poor, right? And then you're contrasting that directly with this Angel Island story of just forcible, you know, medical invasive examinations and the pretext being that you're all full of disease. Um, that's a very different story. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being subjected to that. And I know this is a tangent, but it makes me think about the examinations that we're in our country currently requiring young children to experience. And so, I mean, maybe it hasn't gone into law yet in Florida, but for transgender children, you're basically saying if a transgender girl wants to play on a sports team, they're going to have to certify that. And anybody can accuse people of being transgender and forcing them to go through medical exams. And, and again, this idea of medical privacy doesn't seem to apply when people are being othered, whether it's in that context or certainly in the context of race. You know, we're supposed to respect our bodies and respect our medical privacy, and that is not afforded to the other. Well, and Sarah, to go back to how you were talking about how it's a lot harder to differentiate white European immigrants, right, from uh, sort of white Americans, right, versus Asian immigrants from white Americans, or it's how it's way more confusing when you look like the immigrating class, right, than when you don't look like the immigrating class. It's That brings us to our next topic, which is face of the enemy, right? Over the past century, similar waves of attacks have flared up in times of economic or public health-based anxiety against Asians. These attacks have often been followed by institutional reinforcement and have been really supported by national policy, which has consistently framed Asian faces as enemies of war. In 1929, which is notable because that's when the Great Depression set in, a California mob of hundreds of white men stormed a Filipino working class community in Watsonville, firing into a bunkhouse and killing a 22-year-old named Furman Tobera. This was three decades after the Filipino-American War, during and after which Filipinos were made out in the press to be unclean and unworthy of self-rule. Notably, no one was charged with Tobera's murder. Seven men were convicted of rioting, but received only probation or 30 days in jail. In fact, Filipinos bore the brunt of what came to be known as the Watsonville Riots. The California Athletic Commission placed a ban on Filipino boxers, saying their appearance would incite crowd violence. And in 1933, California enacted an amendment to a state law that prohibited marriages between Filipinos and whites. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans were immediately arrested and detained without due process. Two months later, 120,000 people of Japanese descent were rounded up and taken to incarceration camps. A generation later, anti-Asian racism spiked after the Vietnam War, including in one immigrant fishing village in Texas, where Vietnamese refugees were driven out by the Ku Klux Klan, who set fire to their houses and boats and hung a shrimper in effigy. Side note, did you see that History Colorado Museum put out a new exhibit showing the KKK registers from the 1920s? One third, I think it said, right, of the white men in Denver were part of the KKK in the 1920s. Yeah, 
So this was, I mean, one incident, right, that we just discussed in Texas, but, you know, how many more were out there that were not documented, I think, is something also to keep in mind as we're, we're talking about these. In 1982, we're now moving forward a little bit. The 28-year-old Chinese-American Vincent Chin was beaten to death by two white auto workers in Detroit who assumed he was Japanese and blamed him for the decline of the auto industry. And in this time period, following an oil crisis, consumers had begun opting for more fuel-efficient Japanese imports over American cars. The murderers ended up serving three years probation, but no jail time, thanks to intervention from Judge Charles Kaufman, who wrote, quote, these weren't the kinds of men you send to jail. What does that even mean? Right? I guess if you murder someone who's not white, you're not the kind of man who goes to jail. And... Following 9-11, the Sikh coalition documented over 300 cases of violence and discrimination against Sikh Americans throughout the United States. Again, as Lee notes, when you see it across history, it begs the question of whether we should characterize them as unrelated episodes or as something that's really more endemic and key to American history. So this is where it's going to be ugly. We want to go back to Vincent Chin's death because you will hear his name. You want to know his story. It was a pivotal turning point for Asian American consciousness. It really forced a lot of people to reconsider the myth of the model minority, which is that Asian Americans could really fully integrate by just working hard and keeping their heads down. And in fact, it showed that people of different Asian ethnicities were inextricably linked, whether they liked it or not. Following Judge Kaufman's decision, a movement of solidarity and activism emerged that still persists today. But a lot of Americans still are not aware of Chin's murder or assume it's some sort of relic of history, especially given the outward facing success of many Asian Americans in recent years in fields like medicine and computer science. You know, Tajima Pena said most of the time we were producing the series, if you remember the Asian American series in PBS, it's coming out soon. It was kind of relative peace and prosperity for a lot of Asian Americans. But we knew that from looking at the history, that could end very fast. And Lee adds, when I think about how easily this has happened, how immediate the global anti-Chinese racism has been, and now, just as a side note, anti-Asian racism in the United States has been, it really reveals to me the enduring strength of those stereotypes and narratives across centuries. Obviously, Trump's framing of the disease is foreign, and his usage of the term Chinese virus, it just it mimicked the centuries of damaging rhetoric that preceded sweeping violence. And just as the killing of Vincent Chen expanded a Japanese-American problem into an Asian-American one, Tajima Pena hopes that the current COVID-19 crisis will force people to keep on broadening the circles of solidarity outside our own groups. She hopes that Asian-Americans will not turn inward, but instead use this moment as an impetus to empathize with and support other marginalized communities. And this is a side note, particularly for our Asian listeners, because we stand with you, right? But there is an important note that we can't just be recognizing the murder of Vincent Chen as wrong if we're not also standing up for all of the other marginalized communities who have people murdered on a daily basis, right? We have to figure out how to work together if we are going to fight white supremacy. I love that. Yeah. It's important to note right now that we've been largely detailing the history of East Asians coming into the United States. But it's so easy to lump everybody into this idea of Asian because of certain physical characteristics or because maybe you're not even aware of all of the different countries. We need to emphasize that East Asians are not the only kind of Asians that are in this country. And it's part of the problem that we'll be discussing in additional episodes because 
what the model minority myth has done in grouping all Asians together is leading to this sort of monolithic thinking. To give you an example of the stories that you may never have heard growing up, let's talk about Larry Itliong for a second. As documented by the Smithsonian, Larry Itliong immigrated to the United States in 1929 when he was 15 year old, and he immediately began working as a farm laborer in the salmon canneries in Alaska. His heart was set on becoming an attorney and seeking justice for all the poor. But the poverty he lived through and the violent racism he and Filipinos encountered all but barred him from getting the education he initially sought. He never became an attorney, but he became a storied Filipino-American labor leader and an organizer. I mean, he led labor organizations in Alaska and throughout the West Coast. He called Stockton his hometown while he recruited more than a thousand new members to join the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, the AWOC. He was so good at what he did that union leaders asked him to leave for Delano to organize Filipino grape workers. It was there in Delano on September 7th, 1965, a small town four hours outside of Stockton, that he convinced the grape workers at Filipino Hall to vote to go on strike. And the next day, the Delano grape strike began, and more than 2,000 Filipino farm workers, members of that organizing committee, marched off the vineyards demanding $1.40 an hour, 25 cents a box, and the right to form a union. I think this story is so amazing. It Leong soon contacted Cesar Chavez and asked Mexican farm workers to join the strike. He understood that all workers had to stand together in their fight for justice. Cesar Chavez didn't think his people were ready to go on strike, but he took It Leong's request back to the National Farm Workers Association and along with Dolores Huerta spoke to the nearly 1,000 NFWA members. In a unanimous vote, the Mexicans joined the Filipinos. And a year later, AWOC and NFWA merged to become the United Farm Workers, which is a term that you might be familiar with today, or the UFW. The Delano grape strike lasted for five years. As director of the UFW, recognition grew for Chavez, who took the limelight. But co-founder and former assistant director Larry Itliong has since been cast into the historical shadows. And significantly, while the strike was one of the most important social justice and economic movements in American history, many, including a large percentage of the Filipino-American community, are, remain unaware of Itliong's crucial efforts in organizing the strike and supporting the workers. Under Itliong's direction, Filipino Hall became the Union Hall and Strike Kitchen. Mexicans and Filipinos cooked for one another and picketed together, eventually persuading grocery stores to stop carrying Delano grapes. Itliong also fiercely negotiated for the funding and construction of Agbayani Village, a senior home for retired farm workers, the Manongs, the Filipino elderly who had no family, to be located at the UFW headquarters at 40 acres, which is now part of the National Park Service. Hit Leong negotiated with the growers that a percentage of each grape box picked would support the retirement facility. Over the course of five years, the strike garnered international recognition and was supported by major celebrities and politicians of the time, with people from across the U.S. donating money, food, and clothing to the UFW. In the end, everyone won, and I think that's really important to note. In 1970, more than 30 Delano grape growers in Delano agreed to a pay increase for the workers, as well as medical insurance plans and established controls over toxic pesticides. But notably, and I'm specifically speaking as a Californian here, we have Cesar Chavez Day, right? We have a, a day of remembrance for the incredible work that Cesar Chavez did, but we don't have a Larry Itliong Day, as his name has been largely forgotten. That's... I love that you found this story, Misasha, to share because I had not heard of Larry Itliong. And I'm just so glad that you brought this to our attention. I mean, I hope that all of us can start talking about this in our lives because there are signs that people 
are ready to learn and are ready to, to start embracing a broader understanding of Asian American history. You know, there's an increase in Asian Americans in Congress, in Hollywood, in newsrooms, and among K through 12 teachers. And they've all been key to raising awareness of the lack of Asian American history. And that's from, you know, there's an author and historian, Erica Lee, who commented on this at Time Magazine. But after testifying during the historic March 18th congressional hearing on anti-Asian discrimination, and notably that passed, right? With all oh, but one dissenting vote with Josh Hawley, just public enemy, honestly. Hmm. But the real question now is whether the frustration over the lack of resources will be channeled into meaningful systemic change in rethinking the core United States history curriculum. So there are leading organizers for this, right? Leading education nonprofits and publishers like the Zinn Education Project, Learning for Justice, and Rethinking Schools have long tried to address the issue by publishing articles and lesson plans on Asian American history makers and on milestones and that adapt historians' work for young readers. And the education organization Facing History tells Time that it is working on a new curriculum on Asian Pacific Islander and Asian American Pacific Islander history. You know, there's also Asian American organizations that offer resources like the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center's education website. And one new resource for teachers that came out in 2020 are lessons plans for K-12 by Asian Americans Advancing Justice, which is pegged to the PBS Asian Americans documentary that we were talking about. And the organization is figuring out how to organize professional development workshops for teachers. I love all of this, but there is a problem, right? There is not one universal place for U.S. teachers to find all these resources on the subject. So if educators want to teach this history, it's usually up to them to hunt for the information, the websites, and the professional development workshops that they need to attend. As Karen Korematsu, who's the daughter of Fred Korematsu, you might remember him from not only the fact that he was a huge civil rights advocate, but he was one of activists, but he was one of the plaintiffs in the Supreme Court cases that challenged the Japanese internment. And Karen, his daughter, is now the executive director of the Fred T. Korematsu Institute. She notes that this problem with no aggregate resources is that this is a larger problem with education because no one wants to put any money towards it. You know, in terms of policy efforts, a Connecticut House bill aims to include Asian American history in a model curriculum for public schools, and an Illinois House bill aims to require an Asian American history unit in elementary schools and high schools. On March 18th, the California State Board of Education approved a roughly 900-page ethnic studies model curriculum that includes about a dozen AAPI lessons. This curriculum isn't mandatory. It's more of a reference for school districts. And notably, Karen Korematsu, who we just mentioned, was involved in the effort for it to include more topics about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And I think that's great to see all of this effort going into it. You know, Lee of that docuseries is saying that right now we're seeing so much interest in response to learning about Asian American history, Asian American women, and the history of anti-Asian racism. There is the potential for this moment right now to be an opportunity where there's a greater reckoning of the ways in which this lack of historical lessons are a disservice to our country and our communities. There is a moment here, an opportunity where we may not just see an interest this week and next week, but a newfound commitment and resources and institutions that will sustain it for the many years to come. And so what can you do after listening to this? You can push for Asian American history in your school's curriculums. You can get involved in learning more about Asian American history yourself. 
As always, vote with your wallet, give money or support to those foundations that are working together to make these resources and this history more accessible to all teachers. And perhaps most importantly, talk about this, share this with your circles, share with your kids. If you're not sure how to start, tell friends to listen to this episode and share it themselves. We cannot change what we do not know. Let's make sure history doesn't repeat itself this time. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 